I don't think Professor Eugene Rogan needs much introduction. I think uh, any of us who are interested in the late Ottoman period uh, are, are already great fans of his, and indeed his expertise about the modern history of the, of the, of the Near East, of the Arab Near East, is, is, uh, is of exceptionally high standard. But above all, he's an exceptionally interesting speaker. Um, we at the CBRL are interested, of course, in the history as well as earlier periods of archaeology and, and wider uh, disciplines um, in the social sciences. But the history of the Mandate period, which we're just now beginning to reach the centenaries of, um, is, is of great public interest and growing public interest. And I think a lot of it is focused, as you all know, on, on the British role in the Mandate period, um, particularly uh, Jerusalem, uh, which in December uh, 1917 was, was taken by General Allenby, who appointed a military governor, Ronald Storrs, uh, whose, whose year in, first year in office, as it were, uh, the centenary of that is this year. All that is very interesting, but we do neglect, I feel, here in, here in Britain, the, um, the fate, as it were, of the French-speaking parts of those Arab territories divided up uh, between Britain and France. And so Syria and Lebanon are slightly, I think, neglected, slightly unknown, and certainly I'm very ignorant um, about the, um, what happened in Lebanon during the Great War, uh, despite having strong connections to Lebanon and re reading a lot of history. So I'm looking forward very much to this chance to redress some of those imbalances, to hear about uh, what happened in, in the French-speaking parts uh, or the French-mandated parts, and to hear particularly what happened just before then uh, with the end of Ottoman rule in rather chaotic and warlike circumstances. So um, with no more ado, I'm going to ask Eugene Rogan to, to tell us all about that. Thank you very much. It is such a pleasure to be among friends back at SOAS. I'm very honored by the invitation by the British Lebanese Association and by my old friends at the Center for British Research in the Levant. And I'm delighted to be giving this year's lectures named, I thought for a great Orientalist, but turns out for a great ambassador. I'm doubly honored. My talk tonight focuses on the war experience of Lebanon. My title is Devastated Lands, Lebanon at the End of the Great War. Hegel remarks somewhere that all great world historical facts and personages occur, as it were, twice. Marx famously recalled in his openings to the 18th Brumaire of Louis Napoleon. He has forgotten to add the first time as tragedy, the second time as farce. But the story I tell you tonight is how on two consecutive nights in 1919, the residents of Beirut relived the tragedy of the Great War for the second time as melodrama. Two local theater troops, the Young Syria Company and the National Revival Drama Company, combined forces in 1919 to stage a play by a Maronite author, Georges Murad, entitled Beirut al-Masrah, or Beirut on the Stage. The play was unabashedly Lebanist and pro-French. The author dedicated the, word, uh, dedicated the work to Naum Bakhus, who he claimed had served for the years of the war as the sole link between the French government and the Lebanese people. 
Bakhus allegedly had risked his life by moving back and forth between mainland Syria and the French-held island of Arwad as a liaison between the Maronites and their French patrons. After the war, Bakhus made common cause with Maronite luminaries such as Emile Edde, Michel Shiha, Bashar al-Khouri, and Alfred Nakash, founding the Party du Progrès for Lebanon with France. So the play very much reflected the political leanings of both the author and the man to whom he dedicated the work. In a preface to the printed edition of the play, published months after it was first staged, Murad invites the reader to return with him, and I quote, to a pastime whose consequences are with us still, to turn together the bloody pages of a painful history that we might learn lessons from what has passed. The play captured what Murad claimed were the ideas of the witnesses of that painful war that played out on the stage of Syria. Beirut on the stage was confined to obscurity almost immediately after publication. The Jesuit scholar Louis Shecho referenced the work in his history of Arabic literature of the first quarter of the 20th century. He listed Murad among contemporary Christian authors in his chapter on post-World War I period and noted erroneously that Murad had written a novel called Beirut on the Stage, but he made no comment about the work itself. Now, the fact that Murad, I'm sorry, that Shecho had cast Murad's work as a novel rather than as a play suggests that he might not even have cracked the covers on the work. He just listed it in his own compendium. Though clearly not a classic that transcended its time, Murad's play might be all the more interesting for being so particular to the time of its drafting and performance in the immediate aftermath of the war, describing the devastated lands that Lebanon had become over the course of the four preceding years. The play distilled the trauma of each year of the war into one act. So, four years, four acts. To overcome the breadth of his subject and the limits of time, Murad inflicted virtually every catastrophe of the First World War upon a single family. Camel, his wife Selma, and their children, Haifa and Jean. Rather than fully developed characters, the main protagonists serve as vehicles to represent the collective experiences of the war. Camel and his family were the passive victims of Turkish injustice and the misfortunes of the war. They're not tragic characters in the classic sense of people who are undone by their own choices or their own actions. Now, the play opens, the first act, with a moment of celebration. On an unspecified day in 1914, Camel returns from Paris after a four-year absence and is greeted by his loving family. Coming from Paris is in itself a meaningful place of origin, as we'll come to in a moment. But the family's joy is short-lived. Camel returns with the grave news that war has just been declared and Turkey has concluded an alliance with Germany. Time has been compressed, and the events of 1914 and the beginning of 1915 unfold as if 
in a single day. The abolition of the capitulations, the closure of leading Beirut newspapers, Jamal Pasha's appointment as governor general of Syria, the Ottoman entry into the war, conscription and war requisitioning are all revealed as if they took place on the day of Kamel's return from Paris. And to crown off the tensions, Kamel is carrying a secret letter that will spell the family's undoing. Now let me pause here and give a little historical background so we can better understand what the play is revealing to us. To begin with, the dangerous politics of Arabism. The Ottoman government adopted a number of policies after the Young Turk Revolution of 1908, intended to combat the centripetal forces that were pulling the empire apart by centralizing government more efficiently. The rule of law, including such unpopular measures as taxation and conscription, would be applied with equal rigor across all provinces of the empire without exception. And all Ottomans would be pressed to use Turkish in their official interactions with the state. Now, these centralizing measures targeted the Arab provinces in a bid to prevent the emergence of separatist nationalisms that might lead the Arabs to follow the Balkans into independent movements. Increasingly after 1909, the Ottoman Turkish language displaced Arabic in schools, in the courts, in government offices, in the provinces of greater Syria and Iraq. Senior government appointments went to Turkish officials, while experienced Arab civil servants were given lower-level jobs. Predictably, these unpopular measures drove many loyal Arab subjects who had celebrated the Young Turk Revolution in 1908 with great enthusiasm <coughs> to turn against the authoritarian measures of the Young Turk Revolution and to form civil society organizations to combat Turkification and promote Arab culture and values still within an Ottoman Empire. Not yet nationalist, these Arabist societies call for greater Arab cultural and political rights within the framework of the Ottoman Empire. Arabist societies were openly established in the Ottoman capital of Istanbul and across the provinces of the Arab world. You had the, Ottoman, the Arab Ottoman Brotherhood Association in Istanbul and the Literary Club, where they actively debated cultural matters of common concern. Reform societies were open in Beirut and in Basra. A national scientific club opened in Baghdad. All very similar politics driving these societies flourishing across the Arab provinces and in the Ottoman capital. These societies met openly with the full knowledge of the Ottoman authorities and came under the full scrutiny of the Ottoman police. Two of the most influential societies were established beyond the reach of the Ottoman censors and police. The Young Arab Society, the Jamiat al-Arabi al-Fatat, was founded by a group of Syrian Muslims in Paris in 1909, so well beyond the reach of the Ottoman authorities. Al-Fatat sought Arab equality within the framework of an Ottoman Empire reconceived as a binational Arab-Turkish state on the model of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. As Tawfiq al-Natur, one of the founders of the party, recalled, all that we as Arabs wanted was to have the same rights and obligations in the Ottoman Empire as the Turks themselves, and to have the empire composed of two great nationalities, 
Arab, and Turk. The Unionists viewed the proliferation of Arabist societies with mounting concern. At the height of the Balkan Wars, the Young Turks were in no mood to compromise with demands for decentralization or dual monarchies. When in February of 1913, the Beirut Reform Society, and remember the Beirut Reform Society, it's going to be important in our play, published a manifesto calling for administrative decentralization, the Ottomans clamped down. On April 8, 1913, police, police closed the offices of the Beirut Reform Society and ordered the organization to disband. The influential members of the society called for a citywide strike and organized petitions to the Grand Vizier protesting this closure. Several society members were arrested for agitation. Beirut entered a period of intense political crisis that lasted for a week until the prisoners had been released and the strike brought to an end. But the Beirut Reform Society never reopened its doors, and its members were forced to meet in secret as Arabism went underground. Faced with mounting Ottoman opposition, the Arabists took their cause to the international community. Members of El Fatat in Paris decided to convene a meeting in the French capital to enjoy the freedom to discuss politics without the fear of Ottoman intervention or repression, and to try and raise a bit of international support for their legitimate demands. Invitations were dispatched to Arabist societies across the Ottoman Empire, in Egypt, in Europe, and in the Americas. Despite the best efforts of the Ottoman ambassador in Paris to prevent the meeting from taking place, 23 delegates, 11 Muslims, 11 Christians, and one Jew, arrived in Paris to take part in the first Arab Congress, which opened before an audience of 150 observers on the 18th of June, 1913. The Young Turks dispatched their Secretary General, Midhat Shukru, in a damage control exercise to engage the Congress's delegates in mediation towards an agreeable reform agenda. But the Ottoman mediators managed to conclude a reform agreement that actually went some way towards addressing the concerns of the Arab Congress. The Paris Agreement, as it came to be known, offered to expand Arab participation at all levels of Ottoman government, to extend the use of the Arabic language as an official language of the state, and confirmed that soldiers from the Arab provinces would serve near to their places of origin. The port invited delegates of the Arab Congress to Istanbul to celebrate the announcement of the Paris Agreement. They were given a warm reception in the imperial capital, where they met the Sultan, his crown prince, the Grand Vizier. They also met the three ruling triumvirs of the Ottoman Empire, uh, Enver, Talat, and Jemal. They were hosted to lavish dinners and exchanged warm words of Turkish-Arab brotherhood with men at the very highest level of the Ottoman government and society. But as Taufik al-Swedi, a delegate who attended the Paris Arab Congress from Baghdad, concluded, those familiar with the internal state of affairs in the Ottoman Empire were of the belief that these phenomena were nothing more than a stalling maneuver, and when the time was right, a means of bearing down on those who had organized the Arab Congress. And, as Suwedi suggested, with the benefit of hindsight, admittedly, the organizers of the Arab Congress were all marked men. Within 
a matter of three years of the Arab Congress, several, several of their numbers would meet their deaths at Ottoman gallows in Beirut and Damascus. Another theme to which we'll return in the play. So now let me bring you back to Beirut on the stage. Resuming Act One. Arabists in Paris. You can see why Camel coming from Paris was significant. Arabs, Arabists in Paris had entrusted Camel with a letter addressed to the president of the band Beirut Reform Society, whose offices had been closed, as we just noted, by the Ottoman authorities in April of 1913. Campbell asked his daughter's fiancé, Fouad, to deliver the compromising document, and Fouad agrees to this dangerous mission rather than refuse a request from his future father-in-law. He doesn't want a queer family relations before he ties the knot. On his way to deliver the letter, Fouad learns that the Ottoman authorities had just seized the papers of the French consulate, and Fouad knew that those letters held information that would compromise members of the Reform Society. And so he returns home, the letter undelivered. He finds Camel in deep conversation with Camel's brother, Yusuf, who was himself a member of the Reform Society. Yusuf takes the letter from Fuad and pockets it. Moments later, the police burst into the scene, find the compromising letter, and arrest Camel and his brother Yusuf on the spot. The curtain falls on the distraught family, who lose their head of house on the very day he's returned home from Paris. <coughs> Act two opens in 1915. Kamel has been exiled to Jehan in modern Turkey, in Ottoman Anatolia at the time, a fate that befell many Syrians and Lebanese in the course of the First World War, those deemed to be of dubious loyalty to the Ottoman state. Kamel's brother Yusuf is in yet more danger, He's been put on trial by the military tribunal convened in Halei to judge Arabists charged with treason. And Camel's wife has contracted typhus. And of course, this captures the epidemiological side of the Great War, in which typhus and typhoid spread with ferocious uh, contagion right across the Arab provinces and were one of the plagues that claimed in many provinces as many lives as the war itself. So there is poor Salma, contracted typhus and bedridden, hovering between life and death. Shortage already stalks Beirut. Haifa, their daughter, can buy no flour in the market. The government is forcing its subjects to convert their gold coinage into paper money that merchants simply won't accept. Here again, we have the events of a year condensed into a day. But to the Beiruti audience watching this play, these hardships of war no doubt would have telescoped in memory in much the same way they had done in Murad's script. The venality and the cruelty of the Turks begins to emerge as one of the dominant themes in Act Two. Health officials from the Red Crescent, insisting Camel's wife be quarantined in hospital, only relent when they're offered a bribe. Why didn't you speak to us in this language before, they ask Fuad, who is ask, who's acting as the man of the house now that his future father-in-law has been arrested. Another team of officials arrive, demanding that the women undertake labor on behalf of the Ottoman state by sewing sacks for the government. A group of surveyors enters to advise the family that their house had been slated for demolition by the municipality to enable road widening as a sort of war requisitioning scheme. They leave a promissory note 
for the assessed value of the house, which represented a fractional value of the house, and that only redeemable after the conclusion of the war. In a desperate effort to prevent these Ottoman officials from carrying out their nefarious plans and actions, Fuad draws a pistol on the authorities, but he's quickly overpowered and conscripted into the Ottoman army for his pains. The second act ends with a stretcher carrying away Kamel's wife Selma to die of typhus in a quarantine hospital. And as the curtain falls, Kamel's two children, Haifa and Jean, find themselves homeless and orphaned. So let me digress now into a bit of the social history of the time and talk a bit about the wartime civilian suffering in Lebanon and greater Syria. Starting in 1915, the Ottoman authorities began to exile large numbers of Arab citizens of questionable loyalty. Jamal Pasha took personal credit for this policy. There are people I have personally exiled everywhere, he once boasted with a smile to his aide, the Turkish journalist Faleh Rifki. The primary targets were men suspected of Arabist leanings and Arab Christians, whose churches had enjoyed great power protection of Russia and France in particular in the years before the war. Given that these were Turkey's wartime enemies, you could see why such friendships had been compromising for the Christian communities. Unlike the Armenian deportations, exile in the Arab provinces was not a prelude to a massacre or a death march. Rather, it was a way of neutralizing the threat an individual posed to the state by distancing him from his resource base and from dangerous friends and associates. Men in exile were forced to live off their personal resources, and when they ran out of personal resources, were totally dependent on the goodwill of the Ottoman government to sustain them. Their friends and family back home were on best behavior to demonstrate their loyalty to the Ottomans to try and secure the return of their loved ones from exile. An estimated 50,000 people were exiled by the Ottoman authorities by the end of the war. And so Kamel's experiences of exile would have resonated quite clearly with the audience watching Beirut al-Masrah in 1919. They too would have had many family members who would have known this experience from firsthand. Now, villages already depopulated by conscription were increasingly diminished by the new policy of exile. The impact on trade and agriculture and manufacturing was devastating as shops closed, fields lay idle, farms worked by exhausted women, children, and elderly. And then nature compounded the catastrophe of war when clouds of locusts descended across greater Syria. Locusts are attacking all over the country, Ehsan Turjman noted in his diary of March 1915. The locust invasion started seven days ago, he wrote, and covered the sky. Today it took the locust clouds two hours to pass over the city of Jerusalem. Imagine a cloud of locusts so large that its flight over your city took two hours. God protect us from the three plagues, Turjman wrote, war, locusts, and disease, for their spreading throughout the country. Now, the Syrian lands had suffered from locust plagues periodically through history, but the invasion of 1915 was almost without precedent in both its intensity and its geographic extent. There were very few parts of Bilad al-Sham unaffected by the locust plague of 1915. In a desperate bid to try and halt this plague, the Ottoman authorities ordered all citizens aged between 15 and 60 
to collect 20 kilograms, 44 pounds, of locust eggs each week to be delivered to government depots for destruction or else face a stiff fine. Now, I, I've seen pictures of locusts about that big. I have no idea what a locust egg looks like, but it can't weigh that much. To have to collect 20 kilos of the stuff in the course of a week or else be fined by the government must have placed a tremendous burden on every man, woman, and child in the greater Ottoman uh, Arab provinces. Um, and basically, uh, we find that this, on top of the exile of men and whatnot, really has an adverse impact on the productive life of cities. The people of Jerusalem basically abandoned their shops to try and avoid the fines. Six weeks after the locusts first appeared, Turjman, our witness in Jerusalem, noticed that the shops in Jerusalem were closed since most people were out collecting locust eggs. Of course, such measures were totally inadequate to contain a threat of the magnitude of the 1915 locust plagues. Clouds of the insects continued to ravage farms and orchards right through the summer months and deep into the autumn of 1915. Harvests were ravaged, with whole regions of Syria reporting losses ranging from 75 to 90 percent of crops. The inevitable result was a critical food shortage. Hunger began to spread across the towns and villages of Palestine and Syria and Lebanon. By December of 1915, there was no flour in Jerusalem. And I think you would find the same was probably true in Beirut and towns smaller and larger. I haven't seen darker days in my life, Isan Turjman recorded in his diary. Flour and bread have basically disappeared since last Saturday. Many people have not eaten bread for days now. And he witnessed crowds of men and women and children jostling for flour near the Damascus Gate. And as their numbers swelled, the inevitable fights begin to break out where the stronger beat back the weaker to secure whatever scarce resources are left. We have so far tolerated living without rice, sugar, and kerosene, Turjman wrote. But how can we live without bread? And these are scenes that were played out in the towns and cities right across Syria, Lebanon, and Palestine. So, Resuming with our play in Act 3. In the third act, the play moves from the interior of Camel's prosperous home, where everything has taken place in the first two acts, overlooking the sea, to the open air of Beirut's central square, known since the Young Turk Revolution as Sahat al-Ittihad, so Unionist Square. It's 1916 now, and the events of that year are going to lead to the change of the name from Sahat al-Ittihad to Sahat al-Shuhada, Martyr Square. The act opens with two Arab officers in the Ottoman army discussing the breakdown of order in Syria. Desperate women and children are besieging bakeries out of hunger. Theft is on the rise, and government officials prove to be the biggest thieves of all. As Arabs in Ottoman service, these two officers resent the privileges reserved for Turkish and German officers. The corrupt Turks and Germans provide comic relief in a play that has very few light moments. A Lebanese street trader buys contraband from a pair of Germans who speak pidgin Arabic interspersed with German. It's quite difficult to read when written in Arabic, and I sat there with my foreigner's eye going, what are these words? Until you read them out loud and realized it's German. 
of course, for the audience of the play, they would have caught it for the word go. Anyway, when the hawker tries to pay for his good with counterfeit paper money, the Germans refuse. So the hawker takes out a better quality of faked banknotes, and this way concludes the transaction to everybody's satisfaction. A comic scuffle erupts between the man and two boys, for the street urchins, observing the transaction taking place, manage to steal all of the goods from under his nose. The comic scene is resolved by an Ottoman commissaire who appropriates all of the contraband to his own benefit. So the biggest thief of all, the Ottomans. Enter Jean and Haifa, dressed in rags and emaciated. They have endured a year of homelessness compounded by personal tragedy. Our sorrow was complete after my father's exile, my uncle's, my uncle's imprisonment, and the death of my mother, Haifa reflected. They drove us from our house and gave us this valueless deed in compensation. But Haifa can't afford to dwell on the past. Her brother Jean is clearly starving to death. And she finds herself warding off the unwanted attentions of a lusty Turkish soldier, sergeant, whose offers of money she keeps declining. Take it for my sake, pleads Jean. I'm hungry. Notions of honor are beginning to be abandoned. Desperation is so great. Tension mounts with the sergeant seizing Haifa, the virtuous woman repelling her assailant, and Jean screaming in the background out of hunger. And the crisis is only resolved when the sergeant relents, seeing an Ottoman official approach. So now we're really at the height of the famine. By 1916, the shortages invoked by the previous year's locust plague and the shortages of uh, harvest that resulted produced genuine famine. Um, the famine is estimated to have claimed between 300,000 and 500,000 lives across greater Syria. In the Syrian lands, a famine and other wartime hardships came to be synonymous with the war itself and came to be known as seferberlik by the local, local population. Seferberlik is the word for conscription in Ottoman Turkish. But in Lebanon, seferberlik, uh, immortalized by Feyruz, really came to mean the suffering of the First World War. The Great War was seferberlik, that series of misfortunes that began with general mobilization and led inexorably to crop failure, inflation, disease, famine, and death among non-combatants on an unprecedented level. We have the accounts of a Syrian emigre who went on a clandestine mission for the French, traveling through Syria and Lebanon in April of 1916. He witnessed the suffering of Syrians and Lebanese at first hand. He met survivors who had fled dying villages in search of food. He found countless skeletons of victims on the roads that he crossed, left unburied where they had fallen. In conversation with a disillusioned Arab officer in the Ottoman army in Damascus, he accused the Ottomans of deliberately provoking starvation as a way to purge the state of its disloyal Arabs and Christians. The man writes... They put the sword to the neck of the Armenians as they intend to annihilate the Christian Lebanese by starvation. 
so that they never trouble their Turkish masters again. This is from the accounts of Qubi Khwiri, Rahla Suriya Fil Harb al in 1916. It's the Allied naval blockade imposed in the opening months of the war that is responsible for this famine. Ottoman triumvir Enver Pasha, Minister of War, insisted. So it's not Ottoman measures, but the punitive measures of the Entente that are to blame. British and French vessels had refused to permit any ships to enter Syrian ports, even those carrying humanitarian relief. Enver reportedly approached the Vatican with a proposal to distribute food aid in Syria and Lebanon. Speaking to the papal envoy in Istanbul, Enver acknowledged the Ottomans did not have enough food to feed both their soldiers and civilians in the Arab provinces. He urged the Vatican to persuade the British and French to allow at least one ship to deliver food each month to be distributed by any agency the Pope might choose to reassure the Allies that the food would not go to Turkish soldiers but would only benefit civilians. But nothing came of Enver's papal initiative. Like many Ottomans, Enver believed the Allies were deliberately starving the Syrians to weaken resistance to invasion or to encourage rebellion against the Ottomans. But let me go back to our play. You have a sense of the misery, and Jean and Haifa are but two examples. Now the poor flood the stage, telling horror stories of the famine. One has been surviving on lemon peel he's gathered from refuse heaps. Another tells of women, arrested by the Ottoman authorities for killing and cooking their own children. But the worst is yet to come. I mean, I don't know if you can have much worse than killing and cooking your own children. But worse is yet to come. The authorities are clearing Sahat al-Tihad, Union Square, of all the homeless in advance of the entry of the men convicted by the military tribunal in Alay. Now, in April of 1916, the Ottoman military tribunal in Alay concluded its deliberations. Dozens of the defendants were convicted for, and I quote, treasonable participation in activities of which the aims were to separate Syria, Palestine, and Iraq from the Ottoman Sultanate and to constitute them into an independent state. While everyone knew that treason carried the death penalty, many of those who had been tried and convicted were very prominent men from good families, had held high office, had served in the Ottoman parliament. It seemed unthinkable that the Ottoman government would hang such people like common criminals. But without warning, 21 men were hanged in the pre-dawn hours of May 6, 1916, in the central squares of Beirut and Damascus. Even the Turkish journalist Falah Rifki, who, as I said before, was an aide to Jemal Pasha, governor general of Syria, who witnessed the hangings in Beirut, this Turkish journalist had sympathy and admiration for the condemned. He wrote, Most of those hanged in Beirut were young nationalists. They went from their cells to the noose with their heads held high, singing the Arab hymn. And later that same day, Rifki accompanied Jemal from Beirut to Damascus. Damascus, where seven men had been hanged at the same time before sunrise. Rifki was astonished to see the notables of Damascus proceed with a banquet in Jamal's honor, 15 hours after the Arabists had faced the gallows in Damascus. 
No mourning in Damascus, Risky reflected. Poets, professional flatterers, orators. Everyone expressed the country's gratitude to the great man who saved Arabia from its wayward children. Quite interesting getting that kind of irony and sarcasm from a Turkish journalist witnessing the politics of Arabism challenging the Ottoman Empire's hold over the provinces. But reading Rifki, you come away with a clear sense where his sympathies lay. As for the Arab nationalists, well, Jamal Pasha was no hero. In the aftermath of the hangings, they branded him Jamal Pasha Safah, the bloodshedder. But returning to our play, we see an Arab policeman dreading the task at hand, trying to scatter the crowds gathering around him, asking questions he doesn't want to answer. Is it true, they ask, that they're bringing the Alay convicts here tonight? Yes, the policeman confirms, tears in his eyes. Young and old, the finest intellects, the very spirit of the people. They will all be hung here from these gallows. And he urges the crowd to disperse so as not to witness the horrors that are about to unfold. Predictably, the crowd only gathers rather than disperses. Many, <clears throat> still unaware of the fate that awaits the condemned, hope to catch a glimpse of their loved ones. An old man and his granddaughter appear looking for his son, her father. The policeman, trying to drive the old man back, asked what business he had with the condemned. Speaking in code, the sheikh says he had, quote, lost a you and feared the butcher might cut her throat. There are many lost ewes, the policeman replied in sympathy. So take a last look for yours, for there will be no saving her. Sure enough, the girl sees her father making his way towards the gallows. The old man calls out to his son, but the condemned can't hear the calls of their loved ones. They watch in horror as he ascended the scaffold and the guards place the noose around his neck. Haifa and John join the crowd and see their uncle Yusuf convicted for his activities with the Beirut Reform Society among the condemned. As they take in the full horror of the scene, the voices of the martyrs reach the audiences from offstage. The independence of Syria will be built on the skulls of its martyrs, they shout, defiant in the face of death. Their voices are silenced by the hangman's noose. The sons of the Syrian nation are hanged by the Unionist gang, the Arab policeman announced, finally driving the crowd away. And the curtain falls at the end of Act 3 on the bereaved families reciting nationalist poems to console themselves. So we come to the fourth and final act. It opens in the pre-dawn hours. Those final hours of despair just before the hope of sunrise. It's 1918. Jean and Haifa are among the homeless sleeping in... Union Square, or Martyrs Square, two watchmen discuss the war. The Allies are in Nablus, the Ottomans in retreat. The end is in sight. As dawn breaks, a priest and a Sunni Muslim cleric arrive hand in hand with a few loaves of bread to distribute to the starving poor. They note how the Turks had failed to divide the people along religious lines. Muslims and Christians have been drawn together through their suffering. Pray to God to end this war, the priest begins, and deliver us from this despotic rule, the Sunni Sheikh concludes. 
They wake the sleepers to offer them small pieces of bread until their meager supplies are depleted. Haifa leaves her brother in the square, and Jean, claiming death is near, curls up to sleep until his sisters return. Under an ominous sky, lit by lightning flashes, Haifa and Jean's father, Camel, returns from exile. He's a broken man. He's dressed in rags. He's leaning heavily on a cane. He returned to find his home demolished and his family dispersed, and he fears for his brother, having heard news of the Allais executions. Looking over the homeless people in Union Square, he marvels at how the once beautiful city of Beirut had been reduced to such misery. Camel comes across a young man lying inert on the ground and recognizes his son. But nothing he does will stir Jean. Camel has returned too late to save his son's life. Haifa returns at that moment to find her father clutching her brother's body. But even in this moment of deepest pathos, the state will not leave a family in peace to mourn its losses. A Turkish policeman appears and insists on taking Jean's body away from his family for uh, inspection. Or He um, suspects Camel of the boy's death. He died of hunger, sir, Camel explains. No, he did not die of hunger, the policeman responds indignantly. The government would not permit someone to die of hunger. So the bitter irony of the policeman's retort would certainly not have been lost on Murad's audience. But a new day has dawned. A telegraph operator reveals that Allied forces have entered Damascus and the Ottomans are in full retreat. Suddenly, the streets fill with Turkish and German officers, suitcases in hand. <clears throat> Their speech is a mix of an execrable Turkish and German and Pidgin Arabic all mixed together. These rulers and their allies could not be more foreign. As officials in their fine uniforms cross the stage to catch the train northwards to Turkey, a crier reads an announcement drafted by the governor of Beirut declaring the fall of Ottoman rule. The people rejoice at their deliverance from war and Turkish misrule. There are reports of Allied troops entering Beirut, and they're confirmed as strains of the Marseillaise and God Save the Queen, actually God Save the King at that point, are heard off stage. The Lebanese crowds part to make way for ranks of French and British soldiers entering in triumph. Long live the Allies, the crowd shouts. Long live France. Now, while it suited Murad's <laughs> politics to portray the French liberating Beirut, the first soldiers into the city were actually an Indian detachment from Alambi's army. Few left written accounts of what they found. British military censors, who reviewed all letters from the troops before they were sent off home, kept copies of small samples of letters, which in some cases are the only documents we have on what Indian soldiers did, saw, or thought. There's one volume of these letters preserved in the Cambridge University Library. Anonymized, here's the description of Beirut as seen by one of the Gurkhas liberating the city in October of 1916. It reads like deliberate confirmation of Murad's play. The town is nice, and it must have been nicer still before the war. Nowadays, the people are suffering on account of scarcity. I pity the poor people of this country because, though their dress is so fine, even a colonel's wife couldn't afford such. Yet they beg bread, 
from the drivers, meaning the drivers of the military vehicles that are bringing the troops into Beirut. Small children are left in the streets quite hungry. They subsist on maize, corn. Every house is three stories and well built. There are no poor looking houses. But they lack grain. Before the war, they used to get grain from other countries by ship. The production of grain in this place is not sufficient for them. Oh God, let there be peace soon, and then these people will be saved from starvation. I pity them much. We have an Indian soldier, a Gurkha, coming through Beirut and pitying the misery of the people he's relieving. If a piece of chapati or a biscuit is thrown out, men, women, boys, and girls run and scramble for it in a way that I can't describe. But their dress is finer than any I have ever worn in the whole of my life. How recognizably Beiruti, elegant to the bitter end. <laughs> Returning to the final scenes of the play, as the Allied troops begin to thin, one Arab volunteer emerges from the crowd. It's Fuad, Haifa's fiancé, who had deserted Ottoman service to join the Allies. He sings a sad song of searching for his beloved among the ruins. At that moment, Haifa and her father return from their sad mission of trying to recover their son or brother Jean's body. And as they draw near the soldier, recognize Fouad. The hardship of the past four years dissolve in the joy of their reunion. The play ends with Fouad clasping the French tricolor to his chest, the Marseillaise swelling in the background. The curtains drop. Now, coming within months of the armistice, the hardships endured by Camel's family would have been painfully familiar to the Beirut audiences who gathered to see the play. They too would have lost family members to exile, to famine, to disease. At a century's remove, it's impossible to know why the war-shocked survivors in Lebanon would have sought to relive their traumatic experiences in dramatic form so soon after the war's end. What would motivate you to want to go to a play in which you would relive the hardships of the four previous years? The playwright George Murad clearly sought to give hope and meaning to the people of Beirut, that their suffering and loss would lead to a vision of Lebanon independent of young Turk rule under French protection. Of the public reaction to the two performances of the play, Murad only noted that, and I quote, the noble sons of the fatherland were appreciative. Now, I'm still looking through Beirutian newspapers of the time to try and find a review of this play and have some sense of what its public reaction was in somebody else's words other than that of the author. If anybody has any suggestions, I'd be grateful. However melodramatic the play strikes us today, and it is a terribly two-dimensional script, it is an invaluable document for capturing a public perception of the war experience in the immediate aftermath of Ottoman defeat. This play was written the year after the end of the war. It was published in 1920. There could be no harder an audience to satisfy than the Beiruti public in capturing the hardships they experienced with the intensity of feeling that came with recent loss, bereavement, and suffering. But more striking is the way the play captures the hopes of that end of war, 1918-1919, for a new political age of rights and freedoms under French tutelage. This vision of a new age was to give meaning to the loss and suffering of the war. The Lebanese had suffered, their lands had been devastated, but their experiences had been validated in their liberation from Ottoman rule. 
they could hope to rebuild their country and their lives for a better future. Perhaps the real tragedy of the play lies in the disappointments of those hopes. France proved less disinterested and more imperial than perhaps Georges Murad and his partisans had anticipated. It's a reality that makes the naive ending, the play's hero clutching the French flag, so poignant to us today. At the time of writing in 1919, the Lebanese simply did not have a clue what lay around the corner, historically speaking. In the course of the 1920s, Lebanon did recover from the horrors of the First World War. But under French mandate, it did not achieve the political vision its idealists hoped for. Instead, the Great War prepared the Lebanese for a century of conflict, a century that was to follow, in which their cities would be devastated and reconstruction always came with a compromise that fell well short of their political ideals. A century later, Lebanon has yet to break with that violent cycle, a cycle that has come to define Beirut on the world stage. Thank you. Thank you.